Good morning, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm on staff here at the church, and I have the great privilege of sharing the Word of God with you today. And before we do that, I would like to go to the Lord with a brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, your word tells us that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. I pray, God, that you have a good word for us. I pray that you would help me to speak that word well. And I pray that we would all, whether we're here in this room or that we're home watching this, that you would give us the ears to hear that message and that we would rightly apply it to our lives. In Jesus' good and holy name I pray, amen. Coronavirus, COVID-19, quarantine, self-isolation, social distancing. These are words and phrases that are, are part of our regular vocabulary nowadays. I think it's pretty safe to say that over the past month and a half, uh, our lives have been radically disrupted. I think I've washed my hands more times in the last month than I have in the last six months combined. Uh, I have to keep lotion nearby because my hands are beginning to crack from all of that. Uh, shaking someone's hand, part of our culture, part of our society, things that were commonplace that we would do all the time, uh, especially here on a Sunday morning. That's what you do. You come in, you greet one another, you shake hands. Now... It's unthinkable. Hugging somebody? Forget about it. It's out of the question to do something like that. Face masks used to be reserved for those in the OR of a hospital. Now you need it just to go into the gas station and, and pick up a pack of gum. If somebody coughs or sneezes out in public, it's as if they just discharged a firearm. I mean, we're like, somebody coughed, shots fired, take cover, get down. This is the culture that we're living in. And, and many of us are, are only aware of what's going on out there through a television screen or a computer screen because they themselves haven't left the house in a month and a half. But this is our lives. We are, we are living in an unprecedented time. For most of us, we're spending a ton of time at home. Case in point, you're home right now watching this when ordinarily we'd all be gathered here together. I wouldn't be looking at a, a smattering of people and a bunch of empty blue chairs. We'd all be here together. And so because many of us are home, I suppose uh, there's two ways to, to look at that. You could look on the bright side and say, well, we get to spend a lot of time together as a family. Or you could look on the not-so-bright side and say, yeah, we get to spend a lot of time together as a family, which I suppose it depends upon how you feel about those people uh, to your perspective. But for me personally, I, I enjoy my family. I really do. Um, I have... Uh, a son at home who's a, a senior this year, and one of the bright spots uh, for me uh, is that we are together a lot, whereas normally he'd be 
uh, involved with senior activities at school, getting ready for graduation in just a few weeks. He'd be running track, and he'd be working and coming and going, and I'd hardly see him. But now I'm spending a lot of time with him. And one of the things that Anthony and I like to do together uh, that's passed the time for the last month or so is, is play the game of chess. Uh, I'm new to chess. Uh, I'm definitely a, a beginner, a novice. In fact, he, he wins about 75% of the time, which is a bit of a struggle for me, I must confess. We are playing just last night. I thought I had him. I'm working my strategy as, as feeble as it is. And then he makes like two moves and says, checkmate. And then I'm left to stare at the board for like five minutes figuring out what just happened. And so if I could uh, compare chess with a, a particular aspect of theology, it would be eschatology. That may be a new word for you. Eschatology is the study of last things, sometimes known as end times. How is this world going to end? See, in both chess and eschatology, there are things that I know for sure. They're the basics of it, of each of those realms. But in both chess and eschatology, there's a ton I don't understand. See, for example, in chess, I know that a pawn can't move backwards. I know that a rook can't move diagonally. These are the basics. Like, I know that. I have confidence in that. But as I begin to study the game, I realize how much I don't know. And eschatology is like that. How will this world, as we know it, come to an end? What is the rapture? What is the second coming? What is a tribulation period? Are these all events that are coming in the future? If so, when? And in what order do they take place? These are the questions that we have. And Christians love to discuss eschatology, even debate it. Have you ever been in a conversation like this? Somebody will ask you, so what's your end times view? Are you a, a historicist? Are you a, an idealist? Uh, are you uh, a futurist? Maybe you're a preterist. Full preterist, partial preterist. Uh, what's your view on the millennium? Uh, Post-mill, ah-mill, pre-mill, dispensational, historical? What's your view on the thousand years? What, what do you think of the rapture? And, and how does that relate to the tribulation period? Are, are you pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? Who exactly is the Antichrist? Uh, what's the mark of the beast? Uh, do you know who the false prophet is? Uh, who are those two witnesses? How do you understand the 70 weeks of Daniel? What's the abomination of desolation? Uh, what in the world is Gog and Magog? Uh, who are the 144,000? When is Armageddon going to take place? It's like, ah, stop. I, I, I can't take anymore. I, I don't know the answers to those questions. And this is the frustration that many Christians have. It's been said that the millennium is a thousand years of peace that Christians like to fight about, which I think is a pretty good line. So is there anything that we can agree upon? Is there any consensus out there? I think there is. 
See, like in chess, there are some basics of eschatology where we can find agreement. So for our purposes here today, I want us to operate from a very basic eschatological position. I'm going to give you my position, okay? It is very simple. It's, it's, the, it's the response I give to people who ask me my end times view, and I don't feel like getting into Gog and Magog, okay? It's very simple. I don't think you will disagree with any of the points. There's three points to it. The first one is Jesus is coming back. The second one is, we don't know when. And third, be ready. That is, that is very safe. That, that's a close-to-the-vest eschatology. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a ton of disagreement amongst Christians that Jesus is coming back, we don't know when, and be ready. So if you're, if you're coming to this sermon here today and, and you, you say, I don't have an end times view, let me encourage you to borrow that one. You, you can take that. I think it's a good one to start with, and it's a, it lays a good foundation from which you can build. So with that, let's, let's talk about where we are in our sermon series. As we heard earlier, we are in a very short three-part sermon series called Anchored in the Storm. And there, there's a, a verse in 1 Thessalonians, actually two verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Uh, they, these verses have been kind of the glue that have held all three sermons together. Uh, I, I want to read it for us. And if you are able to, I would encourage you to stand, uh, please, in honor of hearing God's word. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, read like this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. So right there in, in verse 3, we find the three aspects that we have been looking at. A number of weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ben uh, brilliantly set the table for us and, and spoke of the, the work of faith. And then just last weekend, Pastor Mike dealt with the, the labor of love. And I would encourage you to, to, to check those sermons out. They're out there on the web, on our YouTube channel, Facebook, you can find them. I'd encourage you to, to give them a, a watch. Uh, but, but today we are looking at the uh, steadfast hope that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we talk about the hope we have in Christ, specifically today, what we're focusing in on is his return. That, that Jesus is coming back, often referred to as the second coming. And so with our, our working eschatology, let, let's just focus on that first point. Jesus is coming back. As I began to, to study this week uh, in my prep time, uh, this often does happen when you first sit down and you say, okay, what is it? That, what's the text? What am I, what, what's the topic? What are we working with? Uh, I, I be, quickly became overwhelmed uh, because... 
the scriptures actually have a lot to say about Jesus' return. Let me just give you a brief overview at this point and, and provide a sampling. Jesus' return was foretold by the prophets. It was foretold by the apostles and angels and even Jesus Christ himself. What will the return look like? It, it's going to be sudden, like lightning. Lightning strikes, boom, there it is. It's going to be sudden. It is going to be unexpected. For many, it'll be like a thief in the night. A thief doesn't announce when he's coming to break into your house. He doesn't send you a text beforehand, put a post-it note on the door. He strikes when you're not expecting. It's going to be visible. Every eye will see. That is the scope of his coming. And, and you're going to hear it. You will know because you will hear it. It'll be audible, announced with a loud trumpet sound and a loud shout. He's coming back bodily in the clouds. He will descend in the same way that he ascended. And he's coming with power and great glory with an army of angels and the saints with him. And this return is preceded by many signs, such as famines and earthquakes and wars and rumor of wars, international strife, Nation will rise up against nation. There will be false prophets, false signs, and false miracles. There will be persecution and apostasy. But the Bible tells us as believers that we should eagerly await this day. We should await his return with, with prayerful expectation, being vigilant to be alert and watchful for when he comes. And that ought to motivate us to godly living and encourage one another with this message that we might persevere to the end through this life until that day. So you can see why I quickly became overwhelmed. It's like, what do we do with all that? Should I focus on godly living? Should I focus on encouraging one another, the, the actual return, what that's going to look like? I became overwhelmed. So today... I have a very modest goal for us. I simply want to provide something that is manageable and practical. Something that is both hopeful and helpful. Because many of us right now, like I said, we're, we're struggling. We have trouble in our lives. I mean, an unseen enemy has totally rocked our world. Not just Harrisburg, not Pennsylvania, not the United States of America. This is a pandemic across the globe. Who knew such a, a tiny virus could cause such a huge problem? This, this tiny microscopic virus that's, that's transferred through respiratory droplets has taken your life and my life and hit the pause button. We're going through life doing our thing. And it's like, okay, you can just stop that now because it's as if a pause has been put out there. People are getting sick. Uh, ventilators are utilized to keep people alive. P people are dying. There's fear. 
uh, we're afraid, there's distress around us on all sides, there's protests out there now, that's the most recent thing. You know, when are we gonna open up America again? And you got people on both sides of that discussion. We're homebound, we can't go out. You know, if we do, we gotta, we gotta wear a mask. Uh, don't touch anything while you're out there. Uh, if you do, wipe it, after, wipe it down afterwards, make sure you wash your hands. You know, sing happy birthday two times while you're washing, all the stuff we're hearing. I mean, this is unprecedented time. We're forbidden to gather together as a church and as friends. People are out of work. Many of us, the, the personal income has come to a standstill. You're wondering, how's the rent gonna be paid? That mortgage, it's looming overhead. What about the utilities? They're racking up because I don't have money coming in. And nationally, the economy is taking an uppercut to the jaw. I mean, we're, we're as a nation staggering around the ring, ready to hit the canvas, and we're wondering, will we ever recover? This is what's going on right now. And it's got all people, Christians included, stressed and on edge. So now more than ever, we're in need of something that we cannot live without. And that is hope. So when people lose hope, doubt sets in, despair, fear, trepidation. It, there's all kinds of concerns that set in. And for many people, they want to just give up and lay down and die. So we need an encouraging word. And I, and I hope to bring that to you here today. So as I began to, to think about the message, I, I was reminded of something Jesus had said. Very famous saying, popped right into my head. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. And to my shame, I, I didn't know where exactly that was in the Bible. I knew he had said it. I figured it was in the gospel somewhere. But, you know, who did he say that to? What was the context that he said that? I, I knew it was out there, so I had to get my handy-dandy concordance and go find it. And, and you probably know that that is uh, John chapter 14, one of the uh, really most famous chapters in all the Bible, and it's the first verse in John 14. Let me read it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Did you catch what Jesus said after, let not your hearts be troubled? He said, I will come again. And I was so pleasantly surprised to see that. I thought, that, that's what we're talking about here. So, so I want to look at those, just those four verses in John 14 and see what we can learn. What, what's the, uh, the context there? I mean, we're just dropping in on John 14. We don't know who's, who's present, who's he saying this to, where are they, where in the life of Jesus are we, where in the Gospel of John does that take place? Let me provide a little context for you. Uh, this is something called the Upper Room Discourse. 
There's 11 disciples there with Jesus, and everybody is stressed out. See, there's only 11 because Judas, he was sent out already to go betray Christ, and that's going to happen very soon. Then, then Jesus drops upon Peter this bombshell, you're going to deny me three times. So, so Jesus is aware of the betrayal and the denial, and, and, and he knows that what's going to happen in his own life in just a few short hours, he's going to be uh, falsely arrested, savagely beaten, and strung up on a cross to die. And so he's informing his followers of this, and he's telling them, I'm, I'm going to be leaving you, and, and where I'm going, you cannot come, at least not yet. So we have betrayal, denial, and death all closing in on these men. A stressful time indeed, filled with confusion, anxiety, and fear. And that's the context in which Jesus says those words, let not your hearts be troubled. See, we all face trouble. Jesus told us it would come. It was, there was trouble back then in the first century, there's trouble in April of 2020. You know it and I know it. But notice what he says. Let me draw your attention to that first word in John 14. Let. Let not your hearts be troubled. This is known as an imperative. It's a command. It's not, you know, hey, if you can help it, you know, try not to let it. That's not what he's saying. He's commanding them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let it happen. You know what that tells me? That tells me that we have some measure of control. We're not powerless in all of this, that it just comes upon us and, and we're just at its mercy. It's not the case. See, you, you can't stop trouble from affecting your life, but you can stop trouble from infecting your heart. I, I love a quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, he, he goes, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. I think that's a really good quote. My philosophy on that is don't give the birds much to work with. Isn't that true, Pastor Ben? But both Jesus and Martin Luther, are, they're saying the same thing. You have some control here. Jesus says, in this life, you will have trouble. If you know how that verse ends, just hold it right there, okay? In this life, you will have trouble. But the response is not, oh, woe is me. Trouble has come upon me. Remember the cartoon character, uh, what was his name? Dog something, I forgot his name. Um, he was the really depressed dog. There's a name, and I should have wrote it down, but he, he was, maybe, one, maybe my impression will help you. He would go, he would say, uh, you know what? My life is full of trouble. I guess I'll just lay down and die. I forgot who that is, but maybe you'll know. But that, that's not our response. That was my impression there. Hopefully that was adequate. Droopy dog, thank you. See, that's why we need people. That's why you can't do church alone. You need help. Okay, droopy dog. Yes, yes, friends or Google, something. 
But that shouldn't be our response. Nor, nor is our response, uh, the, Jesus is saying, hey, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, you, you can do it. He, he's not holding a pep rally for us like a cheerleader with pom-poms saying, you can do it, rah, rah, rah. That's not what he's saying either. He says, in this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, I, Jesus, have overcome the world. He says, you know, I, I'm not giving you a gloom and doom approach pointing you towards despair, uh, nor am I giving you a humanistic approach that, that, you know, you have the power in and of yourselves. No, he's giving the biblical approach and he's pointing people to himself. Back to uh, John 14. That's that second half of verse 1. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. The answer is believe. Believe what? Believe all hope is lost? No. Believe in yourself? No. Believe in God. And Jesus says, believe also in me. A very cl clear claim to deity, I would say. And, and the verb tense there is, is extremely important. It's in the present tense. That means active, right now. Not, you know, I used to believe, I'll draw upon my faith back there when I did believe. Mm -mm. And it's not, you know, I'll, I'll believe someday. No, it's now. Believe now and keep on believing. Jesus says, I'm the, the, the help that you're looking for. I'm the solution to the trouble that has come upon you. See, during troubling times, we're, we're not supposed to hopelessly look down. We're not supposed to foolishly look within. We're, we're to biblically look up. What did the psalmist say? He said, I, I raise my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. Jesus points us to himself, and he points us to heaven. Verse two, in my father's house are many rooms, a reference to heaven. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Jesus says, believe in me and believe in what I'm going to do. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He says, I got your reservation, okay? I'm going to make your reservation. I'm going to secure it. I'm gonna hold it for you. And then I'm coming back for you to come and get you and take you to be with me so that we could be together. That is what Jesus is saying. But he's not the only voice out there. There's other people making claims. People will tell you they got your reservation. A lot of talking going on out there, especially in the realm of religion. Certain religions like Hinduism and, and Buddhism, they'll tell you, yeah, we got your reservation. It's in a place called Nirvana. Islam, they'll tell you, we got your reservation. It's in a garden called paradise. The atheist, 
He says, yeah, you know what your reservation is? Six feet under. You're going to be worm food for all eternity. Everybody's got a perspective. People are talking. But who has the goods to actually deliver on their claim and hold the reservation for you? You do know the difference between taking a reservation and holding a reservation, right? If you don't, perhaps this will help. Name, please. Uh, Seinfeld, uh, you made a reservation for a midsize, and she's a small. <laughs> I'm kidding around, of course. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry, we have no midsize available at the moment. I don't understand, I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservations. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. <laughs> If you did, I'd have a car. <laughs> See, you know how to take the reservation, you just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Anybody can just take them. Anybody can take a reservation, but it's all about the holding. And, and Jesus says, I'm holding it for you. So you might have a question at this point. You might say, Mike, why should I believe Jesus over all these other so-called reservation takers? Well, I'd like to answer that question with a question of my own. Who is the only one who came to this earth, lived a perfect life, who died a sacrificial death on the cross, was buried, he was truly dead, and three days later comes back to life and he climbs out of the grave and beats death like a, like a rented mule. Who's the only one? The answer is only Jesus. And he says, I tell you the truth. So who are you going to trust? Where are you going to place your trust? Who are you going to believe? Because I'll tell you this, that wherever you place your trust, that will determine your level of hope. If it's it, the atheist, no wonder the atheist is, is spinning like crazy in this world because this is, his world or her world is just turned upside down. This is all they have. For us as Christians, that is not the case. And knowing and believing and thinking about the place that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us, that he's going to do that, that will help you not let your heart be troubled. See, we got to remember, this earth, right now, here and now, this is not our home. I think we forget that. We need a reminder. It's like you take a road trip, and, and you're driving on the highway, you're getting sleepy, you decide to stop for the night. You go into a, a hotel, uh, you pull into the lot, you go in, you get your, your card or your key, you go to the room, you open it up, throw some suitcases on the bed, and then you start hanging pictures on the wall. You wouldn't do that. You're not gonna, you're not gonna redecorate that room. You're only there for a minute. You're there one night. You're not gonna watch HGTV, start getting ideas on what to do with the decor. No, you're not gonna paint. You're not gonna, you're not gonna do any of that stuff because it's a short stay. 
It's only temporary. And you wouldn't hang a home sweet home sign on the wall in a hotel room. But I think that's what many Christians are doing. I think we have forgotten what God has promised to us. And we've forgotten what Jesus has gone to prepare for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. See, we can know some things about heaven. We would probably like to know more. Sure, I'd like to know more. But God has told us some things, and those things we can trust, but he hasn't fully revealed it to us yet. We're probably not capable of handling it, so he doesn't give it to us in the first place. But we do have some words in the Bible, and I would like to draw your attention to the second to last chapter in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. This is glorious. Let me read it to you. This is the Apostle John writing this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This earth is going to pass away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. See, when Jesus returns, he's, he's going to establish a dwelling place for us to be with him. We, we will dwell with him in a way that I don't think we can understand right here and right now. We, we know what, it, what it's like to be indwelt with the Holy Spirit and, and be in the presence of God, but we, we, we only know that partly. Uh, we will know him in a more personal way than we could know him right now in this life. And I think that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is getting at. L let me read this to you and notice the words now and then. For now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. There's our three right there. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So you read the word now. That's, that's now. That's this life on this earth as it is. That's the now, and then, and, and the, the phrase face-to-face -face is a reference to Jesus' return. That, that is the second coming, when we will see him as he is, face-to-face. -face. 
See, heaven is glorious, not just because of the bad things that go away and, and the good things that come our way. No, heaven is glorious because God is there. He's the reward. You know, I, I hope we're not looking forward to heaven for, for any other reason, but to first and foremost, primarily to see him. I mean, I want to see his face. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I long for that like nothing else. That's what I want to hear, and I want to see him. And yeah, I want him to wipe away every tear. Yeah, I want death to be no more, no mourning, no crying, no pain. Yes, yes, yes. But these are the things that we must contend with right now. That describes your life and my life. But there's a day when those will be no more because he's making all things new. You know, if I can be frank with everybody, there's a lot in this world that I'm sick and tired of. Uh, don't get me wrong, uh, there's a lot of good in this world, and that's because God is good and he gives good gifts to all people, especially his children. Don't misunderstand me, but there is a ton in this world that I am tired of. I, I'm tired of cancer. I'm tired of diabetes and, and heart disease and autism. I'm tired of Down syndrome. I'm sick of epilepsy. I'm tired of allergies and arthritis and Asperger's and asthma. I'm sick of back pain, bipolar disorder, cerebral palsy, cleft palate, Crohn's disease, cystic fibrosis. Uh, I'm sick of depression, diabetes, endometriosis, fibromyalgia, uh, migraines, multiple sclerosis, muscular dystrophy, psoriasis, scoliosis, sickle cell anemia, spina bifida, strokes, ulcers, and viruses, including the coronavirus and the flu. I don't know about you, I'm sick of those things. And you know what else I'm tired of? Poverty. Racism, terrorism, abortion, drug overdoses, addictions, child abuse, school shootings, violence, suicide, rape, and murder. I'm tired of all of that. And that, my friends, I just described our world. You have been affected by something on that list. I know it because you live in this world. And I've been affected by those. And God wants us to understand the best is yet to come. It's not now. It's coming. There is your hope. You know, and, and that's why people who write books about your best life now, they get rightly criticized. Because if you're living your best life now, you know what that means? That means you're going to hell. I'm not living my best life now. My best life is to come, right? That, that is how unbelievers think. I got to gobble it all up now. I need, I need every. This is all I got. It just, I got to cling to this life with a kung fu grip because this is the best this is going to get. And that's simply not true because every single person, you, me, everybody in this room, everybody watching this at home, either upon your death or Jesus' return, your life, it's not going to stay the same. It's either going to get a whole lot better, or it's going to get a whole lot worse. See, for the Christian 
who, who believes God and trusting in his Christ, things get far better when we die or when he returns. But for the non-believer, what awaits them, for those who have not repented and are still in their sins, things get much, much worse. It makes that list that I just read seem like child's play compared to what awaits them. Those things are light and momentary afflictions compared to what we all deserve due to our sin. I have, I have said to my, to my son, Anthony, I've said to him on numerous occasions, and I hope he's home watching and not sleeping because I want him to hear this once again. I've said to Anthony as he's uh, struggled to, to cope with watching his little brother have epileptic convulsions, I've said to him, Anth, if you live for this life, you're crazy. You're crazy to live for this life where that kind of stuff happens. If you choose this life and the pleasures that exist here and now over what God has promised to those who love him, what I read in Revelation 21, you do that, you're nuts. I've told him that. And I need to believe that myself because I get sidetracked and get caught up in this world. I don't want to live for this world. I want to live for the world to come, but still be a productive member of this world here and now. See, for the Christian, this life right now, this is the closest we ever get to the flames of hell. And, but for the, the non-Christian, this life right now, for them, this is the closest they ever get to the pleasures of heaven. That is true. And Jesus is the dividing line. I just set up a dichotomy right there. And what runs right down the middle is Jesus Christ. That'll determine where you land. And, and Jesus is the dividing line. And what you do with him will determine your eternal destination. The stakes are so high. I, this is, why, this, is, I, this is why I do what I do. I praise God that he has saved me and given me a job at a church where I can share this message. I can talk to unbelievers. When, when I have somebody in front of me who's, who's outrightly rejected Jesus Christ, I just want to be honest with you. I feel like grabbing them by the collar and say, do you know what you're doing? Do you have any idea? I mean, I don't do that, okay, nor do I teach our outreach team to do that, okay? But that's what I feel like doing because I don't think they realize eternity is forever. So for your own personal eschatology, you're either bought by Jesus Christ, born again, redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus. You have repented of your sins, you're trusting in him, and he has saved you by his grace, and he's gone to prepare a place for you. That is either true for you or you're not born again. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You're still in your sins. You do not have the righteousness of Christ and you will stand before God and be judged like all of us should be judged. And you will get what you deserve for your sinful rebellion. And at the top of that list is rejecting God's one and only appointed savior. Everybody falls into one or two camps. And so, I will say this. If, if that describes you, that second person there, I want to tell you, we're here to help. I, I want to help you. I don't, this is not a message of condemnation. You're condemned already. I'm just 
letting you know. But if this is something that is impressed upon your heart and, and you're concerned, reach out to us. I have no idea who's on the other end of that camera. These things get shared. I, I would bet my life there's people that are not in Christ that are hellbound right now watching this. I would bet my life on that. And if God is moving in your heart, I would say, reach out to us. I'm sure there's an email address somewhere there. Pick up the phone, give us a call. Uh, we would set up a Zoom meeting with you, whatever. This is why we do what we do. We would love to do that. And I hope you hear my heart on that. I would love to do that personally. You just say the word. But for those who I know are out there that are trusting in Christ, I want this to be hopeful. I want you to be reminded of, of what God has said in his word. So I'm going to conclude with one final passage here. Time is getting long. Uh-oh. Let me go here. Matthew 25. I don't have it in my notes, so I got to look it up, but I do have it on the screen. It's kind of a late edition here. Matthew 25. I, I want you to hear these words here, beginning in verse 31. These are some sobering words right here, but also encouraging words, I think. When the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, and he's referring to himself as the Son of Man, when he comes in his glory, his return, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And he goes on to describe what's indicative uh, of the Christian. This is the fruit of the Christian life in the next few verses. Let me drop down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And the chapter concludes with verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And I know a little something about that, that passage there at the end, that in the Greek there, there's a perfect parallel. The word uh, eternal is used, eternal punishment, eternal life. It's a perfect parallel in the original language, meaning they're, they're both for the same length of time. So for Christians who expect to be in heaven for all eternity, that is the, the same for those in hell. And that is a sobering thought indeed. So I want to I wanna try to demonstrate to you what eternity looks like. And I, I'm going to need a little assistance. I think Pastor Ben is going to be coming up here to help us. I promised an object lesson. Thank you, Pastor Ben. Well done. This, uh, this bucket right here obviously represents eternity. It's filled with water, okay? So this bucket represents eternity. I have here a little dropper, okay? And let's say that the bucket is, is eternity, but the, a drop of water, it just squirted out, a drop of water here represents, let's say, 100 years of your life, okay? God may give you 100 years. He may not. 
I'm going to be generous. I'm going to give you 100 years, okay? We're going to round up. Let's see what 100 years of your life looks like in compared to eternity. You ready? Well, squirts out. Boom. Right there. A drop in the bucket. One drop of water compared to this bucket full of eternity. Let's say you get another. Let's do another one. Boom. No one's getting 200 years. Look at how small our lives are compared to eternity. But you know what? This, this illustration, uh, I need to apologize. This, this fails. This is, this is not good enough. Okay, how could I possibly compare eternity to a, a bucket of water? Uh, I think we're going to need some more water. Let's say I take you to the ocean, okay? Are we at the ocean? I hope, yes, Patrick says you're at the ocean. I just whisked you away to the ocean. Look at all that water. Let's say I take my little dropper and I drop 100 years into that ocean. It's like nothing. It's, it's, it's not even a drop in the bucket. It's a drop in the ocean. And it's minuscule compared to what is out there. But I need to tell you, though, both of these illustrations, the bucket and the ocean, they both fail. They, they both fall short. And, and I would like to ask you at home, okay, if there's kids there, uh, whoever, uh, if you're, you know, just a couple of you, just ask, why is it that both of my illustrations might be a little bit helpful, but they really fall short? Go ahead and, and ask that question. I'll give you a minute. All this water talks made me thirsty. I just drank like 10,000 years right there. So did you get an answer? I don't, maybe type it into Facebook. There's an idea. You can put it into Facebook if you're watching uh, via that platform. But in this room right here, we have, I don't know, about eight people or so. I love the interaction. Miss Beth knows this. We do this in children's ministry. I, like, I feel like this is too much talking out of me. I would like somebody in this room to tell all of us, including everybody at home, why my illustrations don't hold water. That was a pun, Okay. Why are they both dead in the water? All right, let me stop. Who, who has an answer? Anybody? Miss Beth, you have your hand up. Okay, I'm sure you didn't hear that, so I'll, I'll say that. The ocean, uh, there, there's, a, there's only a limited amount of water in this bucket and in the ocean, right? Here, two or three gallons, Whatever the ocean has, uh, it, it, there's a certain number of gallons, 999 bazillion, I suppose, but there is a certain number. It doesn't go on forever, but eternity does. It's endless. And, and again, I can't help but think of those who don't know Christ. I, I want to provide hope to the believer, but I cannot help but think that, that somebody who dies without Christ, they spend 999 bazillion years in hell, they're not one day closer to it being over. Do we recognize how high the stakes really are? But I can't put eternity in a bucket, can't put it in the ocean. There's only a limited amount. It's finite, not infinite. 
you will spend eternity somewhere. And that somewhere depends upon where you have placed your hope. So I would ask you, where's your hope today? Is it in Jesus, the one who, who is completely trustworthy, the one who's got your reservation on lock, the one who lived for you and died for you and, and rose from the grave for you, that's gone to prepare a place for you, who's coming back for you? Is your hope in him? I hope so. Because many people will say, I have hope. Well, when I hear I have hope, you know what I want to say? You need to finish that sentence. Hope in what? Hope in whom? You know, same thing with faith. I, I have faith. Great. Faith in what? Faith in whom? There must be an object to those sentences. And both Paul to the Thessalonians and John to his readers, they would point you to the one who was and is and is to come. Jesus Christ, our hope. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, you are our hope. You're the only one that we can fully rely on that we can completely trust with our very lives. You've given us life and you've given us eternal life through your son, Jesus. I pray that we would recognize that the, the world around us is not all there is. There, there's much more than, than what we see around us that we can't detect with our five senses. We, we don't know the future, but Lord, you, you know the end from the beginning. And so we can know by trusting in you. We know that you got us by the hand, that you're holding us, that you're guiding us. And, and I feel like I can endure many things if I know it's just for a, a, a short period of time. It's not going to last forever. And all those things, all the nasties of this world will someday go away. And, and I long for that day, Lord Jesus, when you return and you set all things new. And all that stuff is simply a distant memory. We'll say, remember coronavirus in 2020? That's what we'll say, because it will be no more. Glorify yourself, Lord, in your coming, and, and be magnified amongst your people. We love you. We thank you for all you have done and what you're currently doing and that you will do. In Jesus' holy risen name I pray, 